holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Extra. Hello there, welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunner Blog. Good morning. Yeah, well, morning, just mm, morning. Just morning, uh, it is, it's morning. Nothing good I about feel, it. I feel hungover still, I think. Uh, is that possible, to have a hangover from a football match? But That's how it feels to mm, me. Well, yeah, I, I'm hungover from, from beer. So. so you're hungover from forgetting about the football match? Yes, yes. Something that like that. That seems more plausible. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I feel I feel ropey this morning, and there's no there's no reason other than than the events of the weekend. I think I think it's slightly slightly weighing on me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what what can you say about the weekend? Where to start? Um, I'm, I'm looking for something good. I'm literally on BBC Football now. You know, I mean. I, I would say something about the Super Bowl, but I don't really understand what's happened there. Um, Apparently, one of the teams did a complete arsenal. That's what I can right. make out. They had a 25-point lead or something like that and then lost it, which must be yeah. particularly heartbreaking for fans of that team or fans who didn't want to see the, the other team win. Indeed. I mean, it was sort of a commemorative weekend of Arsenal-ness. I think Egypt as well managed to kind of Arsenal it up as well in the in the AFCON final. Yeah, poor um, old poor old Mohamed Elneny scoring the opening goal. Lovely goal. Mm. And then they go and uh, lose it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, should we get straight into it? I mean, we could try and beat around the bush, as it were, but mm. I think sooner or later we have to face up to... What happened at Stamford Bridge? I mean, how how two days on? Mm. Are you feeling any better about it at all? Um, <laughs> no, no, I don't. No. I don't think so. Um, I I don't even know where to go with this, to be honest, because I've written about it for the last couple of days and I wrote something for the Irish Examiner about it and I've got to write something again today for ESPN which is going to have to touch on all this and it's, it's it feels like you're looking for new ways to say the same thing mm-hmm. if, if you know what I mean um, well you could say it's been it's sort of been going on for a lot longer than two days in some ways well this is it you know it's not necessarily just uh, a defeat to Chelsea away from home in isolation is it you know it's it's the the wider context of it all the fact that this isn't the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time etc cetera, etc cetera, that this has happened 
Um, you know, I, I can I can take losing a game. I've got you know uh, issues when we when we don't do ourselves justice. And in the last week, in the Watford game and in the uh, Chelsea game, we didn't do ourselves any justice whatsoever. We played unbelievably badly against Watford in the first 45 minutes. I thought we played particularly badly in the second 45 minutes against Chelsea. And for me, that was the most frustrating thing was because the players, um, um, we'll talk about the manager and everything, I'm sure, uh, as we go along, but the players themselves must have understood what what an opportunity this last week was. Mm. Win against Watford. I'm not saying it should be routine, but win against Watford. Go into that game at Stamford Bridge with, you know, a bit of confidence, a bit of momentum, a bit of belief, not having everything sucked out of you by a defeat, and take the game to Chelsea. Beat Chelsea, and you it's three points is the only difference between us and Chelsea. And that's what the opportunity they had was. That's what was there for them. And, you know, I'm not into the whole they didn't want it or, or that kind of stuff. But you've got to ask why it was that they they just didn't perform with that kind of uh, opportunity in front of them. I'm guessing, as has been the case before, it's to do with the pressure and being unable to deal with that pressure when those when those games come around. It feels that way, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like whatever Arsenal's result is, Arsene Wenger's first recourse is to talk about the mentality of the team mm. you know I think if they if they win it's well they showed great mental strength or you know if, if they lose it's like we still show great mental strength or we weren't focused enough or it always seems to be about the psychology of it more than it is about the technical element of the game or the tactical element mm. and I think that's interesting isn't it because it creates a kind of scrutiny and I think in a funny kind of way creates its own pressure and uh, they they just continually disappointed on that front. I'm so, I mean, you, you, you think that, that talking about the psychology of it all the time is not a good way to get over a psychological barrier in a way, because it is, yeah. it is. I mean, it, you look at the team, you look at the squad, and I know we were missing some players. You know, we were missing important midfield players and uh, and everything else. But, you know, you look at the squad of players that we have and... Is it is it the best in the Premier League? It might. Well, be. I don't know. I don't know if you can say that. How can you say that if, if it's the best squad in the Premier League? I mean, I think you know for the first time in a long time, uh, we went through a January transfer window, and nobody was calling for us to buy any players. Mm. No people were able to look at our squad and say it's full. You know, it is full, and there's good players in there, and there's some excellent players in there, um, and those players should be able to to perform. But it's clear that um, the psychology or the psychological barrier that they that's there for them, because it keeps happening in these games. Yeah, it's 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 interesting that maybe if you focus I, on that, you know, you you can't ever get over it. Maybe you've got to forget about that. I, I do think that is part of the problem. I think continually talking about it, continually uh, highlighting it, I do think makes it almost more difficult. In a way, and I mm. think that really, really, all you can do is focus on results on the pitch. I mean, sure. it's a chicken and egg situation, but 
the the past week has been incredibly dispiriting. I I know you said Watford, you know, you can't expect the Watford game to be routine, but you can expect it to not be half as difficult as we made it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and as for Chelsea. Uh, I guess it's the familiarity of it, isn't it? That's so frustrating. It's the it's the sense of, of course, of course, it's like this. Of course, we mm. lost in that manner. And, you know, we put a consolation of some sorts on the end. I think calling it a consolation is even an exaggeration. But really, it's again... That was an annoying goal. Uh, yeah, like, I, I get annoyed by those. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think... It, it annoyed me, in a way. Just like, what's the fucking point of that goal now? Mm. Um, I mean, it it is a huge opportunity blown this last week. And it's the same. It goes back to the same thing that we did last season. We had to go to Old Trafford and win. And we lost limply and then lost to Swansea. Now we've lost to Watford and lost to Chelsea. You know, it's this, it doesn't matter who the teams are, really. Big team, small team. If there's a way that we can contrive to, to mess it up, then... Then we will. Um, and it's interesting you talk about, Arsene Wenger talking about the uh, the psychological aspect of things and not necessarily the tactical side. But we saw, uh, in terms of how he set his team up, we saw him change it. You know, he played a 4-3-3. Yeah. Obviously to accommodate the, the midfield and the issues that we had in there. So there was a tactical shift, um, which I guess you know is one of the things that we can at least say, well, he tried that. Fair enough. He didn't just like stick the players out and um, and tell them, you know, just just play your normal game. There was an effort to try and balance the team as best he could. Yeah, I mean, I think it went out the window fairly early on. Well, when we went behind, really, mm. it seemed to me like that's when Urza reverted into the centre. But you're right. Uh, you know, one of the criticisms of Osvenger is he doesn't he doesn't adjust his team to to suit the opposition and he did a, attempt to do that mm. uh, against Chelsea I mean we go on about it again and again but in these big games the first goal is so so crucial really yeah and and once we lost that um for reasons partly that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about there were defensive errors but I think also quite a major refereeing error mm-hmm. uh, we you know we we never really got much of a foothold I mean I, there were good periods at the start of the first half and the very end of the first half but for the rest of it uh, it was a bit of a washout yeah us. it was a bit um, and I think you know you can you can make that point about the first goal and there's no denying that in a big game which is usually quite tight the first goal is is very often not decisive but uh, sets the tone for the match but then you think about uh, the fact that we scored first at Everton scored first at Manchester City and weren't able to capitalise on that. So, um, again, maybe that just says something more about us than than anything else. But look, let's touch on that first goal. Um, I I am still, two days later, staggered by the fact that people can look at that and look at what was basically a forearm smash into the uh, face of Hector Bellerin, leaving him on the ground. Did you see the clip of Bellerin where he's just sort of lying on the ground just after he's he's landed yeah, flat on his back. That. And it's quite disturbing looking. It's really disturbing looking. You know, his fingers are all tightening up and he's he clearly hasn't got a clue what's going on. And actually, if there's one thing Arsenal can take credit for this weekend, it's the fact that they took Hector Bellerin off straight away. How often mm. have we seen players get absolutely 
flattened. Head injuries, the whole lot, and they've been uh, allowed to play on because mm-hmm. it suits the team, suits the manager to have a good player there. And, you know, I don't think there's any doubt that going a goal down, losing a really dynamic fullback like Hector Bellerin and replacing him with, with Gabriel, who was a, a, who tries hard, but look, doesn't give you anything close to uh, what you get from Bellerin. Um you know, it did have a significant impact on on the game. It's not to excuse uh, the rest of what we did, which wasn't any any good at all. But I cannot believe that uh, pundits have watched that time and time again from every conceivable angle and not sa- and not s- uh, said that it's a foul. It's a it's an assault. It's not a foul. He's literally knocked him the fuck out with a forearm smash before he gets to the ball. And how? Uh, even if the referee missed it and didn't quite see it because it's just a coming together, you know, how people can look at the replays of that and not say that it's uh, extremely dangerous and a foul is fucking beyond me. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I'm actually in complete agreement with you. There was a point uh, I thought I was going slightly mad and I couldn't really fathom uh, the way everyone was interpreting and people saying oh it's just Arsenal fans complaining I, I really think that if that goal had gone hit the other way I would know that was a foul I mean it very very clearly is a foul and I think you know people say oh he's going for the ball he's you know he's been brave he wanted think, it more yeah he wanted it more uh, I think the thing is in this case, it's not even really about intent. The fact is that it's a, a very dangerous challenge and his arm is raised and takes the player out first. I mean, I think in any other part of the pitch, that's automatically given as a free kick. And uh, possibly uh, a card. Did you yeah. see Llorente getting booked yesterday for leading with his elbow as he jumped, I think, with, with Kolarov? Um, yeah. And he sort of, that. it was more more his hand that made contact with Kolarov and he got a, a yellow card for that. So you can make a very good case um, for that being a red card simply because of the damage he inflicted upon Bellerin. I mean, mm. it's it's horrendous. Jamie, Jamie Redknapp said that Marcus Alonso was brave. I know. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> you... you you know what? Yeah, it's just it beggars belief. Danny Mills apparently was on BBC Five Live saying that actually Bellerin fouled Marcus Alonso. I mean, do people pay that fucking idiot money for that? Like you got on the national broadcaster, like Jesus Christ! What was the foul? Trying to bite oh, his I, elbow? I've I don't got know. No idea. It's yeah. just fucking beyond belief. You know, that if, if you can look at that and suggest that uh, Bellerin is the one who's committed a foul, then you're a moron and you have no business talking in public over the airwaves or anywhere else. By all means, get a fucking uh, soapbox and stand in the town centre, ring a bell and spout off as much as you like. But that's that should be a firing offence from fucking a, a job on the radio. I mean, I just it's I, I'm speechless practically. At, at, at the reaction to this. Yeah, and I think, you know, people say, oh, well, it's a consequence of Alonso being taller, blah, blah, blah. For me, that means that Alonso could score that goal without committing a foul. The, the reality is he's got the run on Bellerin. If he just jumps and heads that ball in, it's mm. probably the same consequence. It's actually a relatively unnecessary foul. Mm. And uh, 
I don't think that makes it any less grave. I thought it was dangerous. I thought the referee. I thought the referee probably should have spotted it. What I couldn't believe was that those with the benefits of replays yeah. couldn't spot it. Yeah. Yeah, the idea yeah. that, the idea that um, you know, I think we all like the physical aspect of football, and there is something really uh, enjoyable about that when you see a crunching tackle, you know, players who are strong, who are fighting, who are committed to winning the ball, but winning it fairly. When you go in with your elbow and you smash a guy in the face and he's unconscious before he hits the floor, it's just absurd that, that people aren't, aren't, aren't calling it what it is. I mean, in rugby, that would be a foul. Yeah. You know, um, so I just, I, I don't get it. I think, you know, what you said, it's very easy to perpetuate this Arsenal are soft narrative. And, you know, we are at times, we are a bit soft and we are a bit easy to push around. There's no question that we could be physically more imposing, that we could stand up for ourselves more. But that doesn't, that doesn't matter a shit when a guy has been assaulted and knocked out. That's not being soft. Ask anybody, who's the hardest man? Who's the hardest player in the Premier League? I don't know who it is, but put him on the end of that challenge from uh, Marcus Alonso, and he too is going to land flat in his back, not knowing what day it is. It's just, mm-hmm. it's bullshit. Yeah, I, uh, I think there is that element of, of it, isn't there, that people enjoy seeing Arsenal get roughed up. Uh, and I think, you know, it's kind of like our comeuppance for, be, for daring to uh, be have a sort of technical game. But mm. I, I think... Yeah, it's a it's a clear as day foul and very frustrating to not see it perceived that way by you know supposed experts. But <laughs> I, I think the, the 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 reality is that we have. Well, the, I think every Arsenal fan is prepared to acknowledge is that there were a lot of errors anyway around that goal. It wasn't well defended, and had the foul not be committed, not been committed, Chelsea might well have scored in some other way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Look, I'm not I'm not saying that either. You know, you can look at uh, Theo Walcott, you can look mm. at Petr Cech for that goal, and that's not to uh, excuse them in any way. It, they're, they're separate uh, incidents, they're separate parts of it. It's just this one thing that we're focusing on uh, th- that to me is the key part um, that, that's been ignored and... Uh, continues to be ignored. I don't even know why more people aren't writing about it. You know, you would think at this point, you know, normally when something happens with this this weight of opinion, you get somebody, uh, you know, who will go, oh, well, I'll give the counterpoint to that. But I haven't even seen anybody write about it. Maybe it's because it's so incidental in the grand scheme of things, or that's how it feels, obviously, because of the weight of the defeat, that there's so much else to talk about. There are so many other issues and bigger issues, clearly, uh, for Arsenal and for the football club that, you know, it's, it's a bit of a side issue. So maybe, maybe that's what it is. But uh, hopefully Hector's uh, feeling feeling okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's because you know, if that had been the only goal in the game, maybe the discourse would be carrying on. But yeah. uh, I think given given the wider issues, it's probably faded. Yeah, into and look, you know, I think Chelsea were better than us uh, in the first half. They were putting us under some pressure. They were moving us around. Um, but you know, we we probably should have gone in uh, level at halftime I think Gabrielle had a mm-hmm. yeah great chance incredible chance really and the sort of chance where you're just willing him to put it either side of the goalkeeper and it goes straight at him really mm. couldn't have been much easier for him yeah I mean that was a that was a huge chance and again you know maybe that's something that would have inspired Arsenal maybe we, you know going in at halftime 1-1 getting a goal back 
you know, we'd be able to say, remember what happened to uh, to us at Manchester City and at Everton. We went a goal ahead and then they got a goal back and maybe they'd be a bit worried. Maybe they'd be a bit rattled by it, you know. Um, but the second half, James, I mean, for a, gr- for a group of players who knew they had to, at the very, very least, avoid defeat, the... I couldn't believe some of the passing. The yeah. way we gave the ball away. Mustafi was horrendous with the ball yeah. at his feet. He was dreadful. Koscielny as well, making these errors. And, the, you know, these are the guys that you're looking for to at least give you some kind of solid platform. You know, midfield didn't work at all. There's no question about that. Um, but, you know, you make it so much more difficult for yourself when you just carelessly and sloppily give the ball away. I mean, I think it, to be honest, it was right through the side. I mean, you could look at, you know, we can get, we will get onto Jack's distribution for the third goal, but all the way up to Alexis, you know, his passing wasn't up to scratch really. Terrible. But it, it was noticeable, I thought, with the centre backs. I, you know, especially because in the early part of the season, that was a part of Mustafi's game. I think we were all impressed by, mm. uh, you know, his ability to, to play the ball at speed, to find people from deep. But really, since he's come back from injury, I think his passing has been way, way off and uh, it sort of hit its nadir against Chelsea. Yeah. Koscielny too. It's tempting to look at us for that. You know, is it because the midfield options weren't available to them? They, you know, they couldn't, there wasn't a guy like Cazorla prepared to drop off and, or Shaka mm. to drop off and pick it up off them simply, but they were forced to be more ambitious, but we were just giving it away time and time again, inviting pressure, inviting problems and... It, you know, the, did you watch Match of the Day by any chance? I I didn't know. Uh, fair enough. I didn't on the night, but I watched it on back last night, and they had clips as well of Chelsea players just kind of strolling through the Arsenal team with with such ease. You know, like David Luiz or yeah. uh, Matic, just just literally waltzing between players without enough pressure. Mm. And and Arsenal actually started the game in the first minute or so with Alexis right up top waving people up to support him some sort of like high press in action with Ozil forcing a mistake on the left hand side do you remember that and Theo Walcott trying to get up and support him too that just completely went out the window and in a second half when Arsenal really really needed to perform there was there was next to nothing really yeah that's what was so frustrating that we were second to pretty much everything. There was no, I know they're unquantifiable, but you can, you can see when there's aggression, when there's, when everyone's at least trying as hard as they can possibly try to, to have an influence on the game. And I don't think you could say that of any Arsenal player. Um, maybe Oxlade-Chamberlain, maybe Danny Welbeck, when he came on, looked like he gave a shit. But at that point, uh, the game was, was done and dusted because of their second goal. And that as a, a goal is as frustrating to me as any goal we've conceded in the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you about Francis Coquelin's role in that goal. And the day after I was, when I wrote about it on Arsblog, I was going, chop him down, just take a yellow card. And then it occurred to me that maybe, maybe because of what's happened to Granite Xhaka... Mm-hmm. that's sort of in the back of their minds that, okay, if I commit a really cynical foul like that, I, I could get sent off. And then it occurred to me that there's still a way that you can take a yellow card, do what Ander Herrera did 
to Firmino in the Liverpool-Manchester United game a few weeks back. Firmino's running through midfield. He goes past Herrera. Herrera simply grabs his uh, shirt and hangs on to it to the point where uh, the referee has to blow and give him a yellow card because Firmino's going nowhere. And yeah. that that kind of... The lack of cynicism. I know we all want football to be pure, but that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. It you know you've got to have that touch of uh, cynicism in your side. Uh, all our best teams had that. It's experience. It's just fucking common sense. Um, and I thought the defending. I I thought it was a goal far more about terrible defending than great skill. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two sides to every coin. It's funny, I was thinking, I think any great solo goal's probably got an error in it. I spoke to a Spurs fan about this, and we all so fondly remember Thierry Henry's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant solo individual run yeah. at Highbury, where he ran that to the pitch. But something I wasn't aware of is that Spurs fans still talk about Matthew Etherington's role in that goal. Oh, really? And how, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and how he ought to have brought Henry down in the first half. Apparently, he has an opportunity to do it, lets him get away and the rest is kind of history and uh, you know I think it's 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 funny to look at it from the other side everyone's praising that Hazard goal but as Arsenal fans we can't help but see the chance we had to stop it I think Sam Wallace described Francis Cochrane as, as like a man trying to get into a runaway golf buggy um, <laughs> Which I thought was very good. Uh, I mean, literally, he, he couldn't get close to Hazard. Hazard was strong, and Hazard is difficult to stop once he gets up ahead of speed. But you could see in Arsene Wenger's post-match press conference, actually, he was very frustrated about that goal. He clearly felt that there was an opportunity to put an end to that move. And, and he's, you know, he's an esthete. He's someone who is anything but pragmatic at times, but he knows that, you know, in that case, that's what you have to do. You yeah. have to commit a foul. You have to, you know, hold on to the shirt. I don't know. I don't care. Dive and palm the ball away. Just make sure that uh, he doesn't get any further. And I think Cockland tried. And I think Koscielny didn't cover himself in glory no. either. I think he backed off way too much. Uh, kind of invited Hazard in on goal. And yeah, look, I, it looked great, but from an Arsenal point of view, it was, it was mm. a mess. So, I mean, we threw on uh, Olivier Giroud, we threw on Danny Welbeck. Um, I'm not sure there was any discernible plan at that point other than get as many forwards on the pitch as we can and see what happens. Uh, yeah. It didn't really have any great impact uh, on on our game. I think uh, Courtois had to make a save, didn't he, from Welbeck? And Mustafi missed a good chance at the, the near post from a corner. Um, and then they scored the third goal. Um, I mean, great assist. <laughs> I mean, look, it was uh, that was about as bad as it could have been. I mean, it was one of those where it, the day hadn't been great, and that really sort of t- took it down another notch, didn't it? I mean, the, the, the nature of the defending, and of course, the identity of the goal scorer. Mm. Um, painful stuff. Very painful stuff. And, uh, yeah, that sort of set the seal. And, and three goals is sort of where it stops becoming a defeat and becomes a bit of a, a thrashing, really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I, I don't really know what else to say about that goal, to be honest, other than... Look, it's, a, it's you know, it's unfortunate, but a goalkeeper as experienced as Petr Cech really should be doing better there. I'm sorry, you know. Um, yeah. It's, it's a mistake and mistakes can happen, but fuck... You just, you know, it, it, it's just another part of what we were talking about a bit earlier. You know, the um, the pressure 
that even someone as experienced as Petr Cech, someone who has uh, won as much as he has down the years and played as much football as he has, can't help but be somewhat banjacked by Arsenal's crippling self-doubt. It's... um, Mm. If yeah. you stay at Arsenal long enough, you you become Arsenal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and and then of course we got that that late late goal, but <clears throat> there's almost nothing really to say about that, to be honest. No, other than that, it proves Olivier Giroud is a very <laughs> handy substitute. His record continues, I guess. Yeah, another another late goal. So look, a, a, a profoundly disappointing day, if not an altogether unsurprising defeat. Um, and it raises big questions, I think, about what we do and where we go from here and how we go from here. Because uh, when you're out of the title race at the start of February, it's February the 4th, and you're you're done. Unless something incredible happens to Chelsea, which I can't, uh, I can't see it. Um, it... You know, the whole point of the league season is that you're there to compete and to try and win the title. And if you go, as we've said numerous times or numerous times, if you go all the way to to May and you're pipped to the post by a team who've been slightly better than you over the course of the season, you know, it's disappointing and it's unhappy and everything else. But you can sort of hold your hands up and say, OK, I can I can live with that because I know we've given our best most of the time. Uh, but but to be out of it the start of February, it's um it's just it's just bad. It's bad. Yeah. There's no two it, ways about it. It is bad, and it, I think it's kind of especially disappointing. Given you know, I think we had some kind of uh, what what now looks like false hope earlier in the season. You think back to the reverse fixture, for example. You and I were in New York. Mm. Uh, Arsenal dispatched Chelsea three 0 and it looked like. I mean, it, not for the first time in a few years, but it looked like maybe we turned a corner there. Um, and it, it hasn't transpired. It hasn't proven to be the case, really. Mm. Uh, I mean, we did turn you, the corner, but we sort of walked straight into a lamppost. Yeah. <laughs> um. yeah, we turned the corner, but it turns out that we're just walking around the same block again and again. <laughs> yeah, going, hey, wait a minute. Haven't, haven't I been yeah. here before? Haven't I been here yeah. before? It is, um, we don't seem to be able to learn, do we? It's less of a corner and more of a roundabout, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, we 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 do, and then we unlearn. It's it's we revert to we revert to Arsenal, um, and and then that pains me really that that's what Arsenal has become synonymous with, because that wasn't the case. Yeah, twelve years ago. Well, yeah, but there is a thing, isn't it? You say twelve years ago. Twelve years ago is a long time. It is a it long is time. It is a long time. You were just uh, a just a lad, James. I know. Yeah, twelve years is a long time. Um, I, I uh, yeah, and I think what is also making this result so uh, depressing mm-hmm. is that what it means is not only that we're out of the title race, but that we're in a battle for the top four. And I just think that there's no appetite for that, really. Yeah. Yeah. That may change, you know, at the end of the day, we'll want to finish above 
Spurs, United, just, City. Yeah, I mean, even just take it down to a micro level, you want to win every game you're playing. So you just want exactly. to win the next game and, you you know, the next game will come and maybe there won't be as many people in the stadium as there should be uh, for various reasons. Um, people who literally will have no appetite to watch uh, this team uh, do battle for the top four again. But, you know, on a very micro level, you just got to get on with it and, and, and get through to the end of this season and see what happens, you know. Um, but, yeah, quite quite what happens then is is going to be interesting. Um, so maybe that's something we'll touch on in, in part two, will we? I'm sure there's lots of questions. I'm sure. I'm mm. sure that's a topic that will come up. All right. Uh, nothing else uh, from the weekend that you want to discuss? Anything? Um... Uh, no, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> Liverpool lost. Uh, Liverpool lost, yeah. To Hull, who were playing at the weekend? Exactly. They've just hit form at <laughs> the wrong time for us. <laughs> uh, I thought briefly that uh, Man City might drop points. But since they've signed Jesus, I think, you know, things have taken a turn for them. Well, you know, that's a bit of an unfair advantage. That dude, I, that I dude really can do so. all kinds of tricks. I feel like headline writers are really going to milk this one, um, and understandably so. You know, it's quite fun. Yeah, I did see the back page. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did see someone saying that uh, if they don't have a, a Gabriel Jesus or a Gabriel Jesus chant to uh, Depeche Mode's personal Jesus, uh, they're they're doing it all very wrong. So I'm sure that's something that'll get an airing. Yeah, you'd, th- you'd hope so. Yeah. Um, from the weekend. N- no, I mean, uh, Eddie Howe's audition to be Arsenal manager was shipping six goals at Everton. <laughs> was an interesting one. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah. Well, look. Let, let's, our own messiah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, look, um, let's, on that note, uh, leave it for part one. We're going to come back with part two and your questions right after this. tired. I take it the caffeine toothpaste and adrenaline face serum aren't working? Well, maybe you should ask Santa for a Nectar mattress this year. And if the big guy brings you another unicorn finger puppet, don't worry, because mattresses start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com today. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is the part of the show where we answer the questions you sent to us on Twitter, at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog, and also on the ArsBlog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the ArsBlog. As ever, after a bad result, James, there are a lot of questions like, why? Why are we such cunts? What's the point of it all? Why should I even bother? Um, and uh, to those questions, I, I don't know. What else are you going to do? What are you going to replace it with? Some other kind of weird self-harm type thing. This one, this one's easy. You know how it goes. It's not very taxing or testing. Just <laughs> stick with what you know. That's that's my advice. 
Yeah, it's, it's healthier than actually banging your head against the wall. Mm. So, you know, not stick much, with it. but still, not no. much. <laughs> all right, I'm going to let you go first. Oh, what, what an honour. Thank mm. you. Um, all right, let's have this. Uh, let's, let's try and be positive. It's from James Dower on Twitter, and he asks With our title challenge all but extinguished, don't worry, we're going to turn it around. Um, what what would now be deemed a successful season come the end of May? Winning the Champions League. Right, yeah. That would be good. That would be good. That would be very successful. Um, yeah. That, I mean, the FA Cup would be great. I wouldn't say no to an FA Cup win, but whether that's, whether that's enough um, to, to make... To make up for not challenging properly in the Premier League, I, I'm not sure it is. Um, just in the minds of so many people, that's that's what I that's what I'd be thinking. Um, mm. It's not to denigrate that as an achievement because uh, winning the cup is great, but winning the Champions League would clearly be a remarkable achievement from a footballing point of view. It would also show that perhaps we have changed in the sense that we can get beyond the round of 16 and we'll clearly, if we win the Champions League, I know we're talking um, a, a massive hypothetical here, it would show that we, you, you know, we've been able to deal with pressure and deal with big teams. But I think that's what it would take. Um, you know, a huge success for people to be in any way convinced about um, wh- where the future lies or if the future still lies under, under Arsene Wenger. I mean, the bad news is we ain't going to win the Champions League. <laughs> no, we're not. Uh, that's, that's the issue with that. Yeah, it's a slight flaw in that plan. Yeah, yeah. It sounds lovely, but mm. I, I, I really don't see that happening. I mean, yeah, I, I, I worry about the Bayern Munich tie. I think it'll be tricky for us. I mean, maybe, you know, stranger things. You always, I always think of Chelsea, funnily enough, who won it in that season where they weren't particularly any great shakes in the league. Mm. Um, miracles can happen. They can. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can class that as a miracle. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, maybe that is what's required. Maybe that is what's required. Mm. Do you, but it feels like the, the longest of long shots. What about the FA Cup? Like if, if Arsenal finished in the top four, um, which is not a guarantee, and won the FA Cup... Would that be sufficient for people? For some people, I guess. Um, but would it would it go any way to addressing the the bigger issues that we have in terms of how we deal with with the Premier League? You know, when you look back, uh, uh, if you step back and look at what Arsenal do. You know, finishing second or third or fourth every season for 20 years, Mm. you know, after we went those years when we finished first sometimes, which were very nice. You know, it's not a it's not an easy thing. It's not uh, something that many managers can uh, accomplish. And when you step back and look at it objectively, it's not that bad. But when you're living it season after season and your expectations are raised and your hopes are raised and you go out and you spend 
big money on world-class players like Ozil and Sanchez, and then you bring in, you know, big money signings again this summer, and the squad looks full, the squad looks uh, like it's got lots of quality, uh, and and you, you, you fail in almost the same way, it's impossible to, to look past that. I mean, here, here's a question from uh, Jason Smith, who's at 11111, which is quite nice uh, on Twitter. Uh, and he, he wants to know, it's more or less the same question, but with this caveat, is top four in an FA Cup good enough for Arsene Wenger to get another two-year deal? Ah, uh, two years. Um, well, that's supposedly that's what's on offer. Right, okay. Um In whose eyes, I suppose? It's, sorry to answer a question with a question, but that is the question, really. In well, whose eyes? Okay. In the Do eyes you... of the decision-makers at the club, mm-hmm. I would say that certainly would be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In your eyes? <laughs> in my eyes? Um, in my eyes. <sighs> it is. I mean, it is a difficult one in the sense that... Um, when you make a change, uh, it should be to make things better and to improve things, right? Yeah. Um, but when it comes right down to it, Arsenal aren't going to make a change, right? Arsenal, mm-hmm. as a football club, are not going to make a decision that says we're going to make a change of manager because the club needs to go in a different direction that maybe, uh, you know taking away this, I won't, well, maybe a comfort zone that, that maybe everybody in the club operates in to a certain extent because it's not something they, they have to deal with. Arsene Wenger is going to make the decision. He's going to either say, yes, I will sign a new contract or no. I don't think I can carry on in this job because maybe the way the team is playing or the, the, the reaction to him. You go back to that Ivan Gazidis quote which I thought was always a little bit uh, a little bit spineless, where he says, you know, ultimately it will be the fans who decide Arsene Wenger's future. He said this four or five years ago, I think. Um, it'll yeah. be the fans who decide his future. And what that does is it, it uh, abdicates the board of any responsibility in that regard. And, and it says that literally, if people shout loud enough, then they will make it so uncomfortable for Arsene Wenger and the board that there'll be no choice but for him not to sign a new deal. And that that really is a weird, strange, undynamic situation for a football club uh, at the top level to be in. Mm. Mm. So I think for many people, top four and an FA Cup won't be enough. And perhaps the consequences of that will be evident in in other ways, whether that's protests or, or I don't know. But that's what the board have told people to do, basically. Yeah, I guess so. It's kind of uh, <laughs> the the era of sort of de- democratisation, I suppose, that we mm. live in. People will make their voices heard. I, I yes, it is a, a perverse situation where we, we have a club who almost have no control of their own managerial destiny. You know they they've kind of absolved themselves of that responsibility. Yeah. Um, I think for 
For me personally, it's difficult, the manager's future, because I actually think at the end of the last deal, I was probably more inclined to say it was an appropriate point to leave. I, I actually think things have uh, changed a little bit since then, partly about the people who are available to replace him. Um, you know, if I think back to then, I think sort of Jurgen Klopp was a possibility. Pep Guardiola looked like he might become a possibility. They mm. were both kind of obvious fits in my mind. They no longer are. Um, that's not to say there aren't people out there who are good coaches. Of course there are. But uh, I also think that the the way the club operates in the transfer market has changed since then. Mm-hmm. Um and we are much better on the recruitment front. The squad is much better, much stronger, much deeper. Um, so I'm, I'm less. I'm not desperate to, you know, kick Arsene Wenger out to see him sure. gone. Uh, however, I wouldn't be extending the contract hoping for a dramatic change because that would be ludicrous. You yeah. Know, d- if we've seen the same thing for long enough, the chances are that this is the thing now, right? Yeah, exactly. Here's, here's I mean, let's put it a slightly different way. Um, if we don't win the Champions League, <laughs> sure. uh, and if we don't win the FA Cup, and yeah. if we finish in the top four, will that be enough for Arsene Wenger to decide to stay? Or will he... Will he, you see, I, I have a feeling that he might decide it's time. I do have that feeling. I've had that. You have sort of, had that for a while, haven't you? Yeah. That if it, if it's, if it's contentious, if the season finishes in, in, you know, fizzles out and just disappointment and, you know, uh, bubbling anger everywhere you look and you don't have to look too far to see anger. I know not all of it is necessarily uh, the most um, focused, I guess. There's a lot of ranting and raving, which is understandable uh, to an extent, but not necessarily representative of of, of everything or, or the way that the vast majority of Arsenal fans think. But, you know, if if it is there, I have a feeling that he might say, that's it, it's time, time for me to go. Well, I mean, look... <laughs> It could get it could get quite grim. I mean, if if we do go out against Bayern Munich by early March, that is March the seventh. In between now and then, mm. we've got uh, you know a, le- a league game against Liverpool that will be difficult at Anfield. I mean, that, although to be fair, they can't win a game f- for the moment. So they'll probably pick up form shortly before then. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> you would expect us to navigate a tie at Sutton. But I mean, I'm touching wood now because of God knows with this team. Um, but it could it could get if the Champions League and Premier League are effectively off the table by March. Mm. Uh, that's a lot of there's two months of the season there really for resentment and anger to kind of swell and build and that discontent to grow. Mm. And I think that I do think that all, as much as it's sort of kind of cowardly almost what Gazeta said about. Uh, the fans will decide. I do think that that's true in this case. Um, that if there is a sense within, and I think it's going to be within the ground, isn't it? If there's a sense within the ground that the there is opposition to the manager extending his contract, I think it surely will prove I- impossible. Yeah, I mean, that will be predicated upon results as well. Um, yeah. 
you know how the team performs and how the team plays. You know, win a lot of games at home, and uh, you, you cut out that kind of a problem. But yeah, I mean, it it, it does feel like we're we're heading towards the end game because um, there there must be a lot of fans, um, as you say uh, earlier on. There's no appetite for uh, a top four battle anymore because we've been there, we've seen that, we've done that, we've worn that t-shirt. Uh, but you know. What about people who will say, well, I've got no appetite for another two seasons of Arsene Wenger because it plays out more or less the same way time and time again. Variations on a theme, but as you said, the thing is the thing now. Mm. So that's got to be a consideration, I guess. It's it so it's so complicated. I mean, it is. And it, it, it's like... Um, you know, I, I would be slightly excited by the idea of a new manager. I've no idea who that manager sure. is or should be. You know, uh, and I, I like and admire Arsene Wenger uh, immensely. I think he's been a fantastic manager for us. Uh, I think the criticism of him stems from, uh, you know, from the fact he's been there for so long. You know, he's part of the furniture now, but he's also a very... Um, important part of the football club in terms of how it's set up and the structures. Uh, so, you know, you, you get rid of him. And as I wrote in the blog today, you need a, a director of football. You need somebody to head up recruitment. There's no football experience on that board at all. Mm. There isn't. There's Ivan Gazidis who worked in MLS and, and that's about it. You know, we don't have football people on the Arsenal board. We've got Stan Kroenke and Josh Kroenke and Sir Chips and uh, Ken Fryer, I should say, of course, is, is somebody who's uh, still there um, uh, and obviously has vast experience of Arsenal and football. But, you know, he's not a young man either. So it feels like if Arsene Wenger was to go, that you create a, uh, not just one vacuum, but many vacuums within the club that have to be filled. They do have to be filled. Because if you want a coach like Antonio Conte or Pep Guardiola, he's not going to come in and do the paperwork. He's not going to sit down and do transfer negotiations. He's not going to do 20% of the stuff that Arsene Wenger does. So you've got to put that in place as well. So it, it is a ma- it is a massive thing. I would like to see how they do it or what sort of a plan they might have in mind or what sort of a succession plan. But as Philippe was saying on the Arscast last Friday, they don't they don't appear to be a club that has uh, even considered life with, without Arsene Wenger. No, no. I mean, I was about to ask you, do you think there is any kind of plan for that eventuality? No. <laughs> I mean, there have been a couple of stories in the press about intermediaries um, reaching out to different managers. That You know, the guy at Leipzig, um, Max Allegri's been mentioned, but mm. one one has no idea of the club's direct involvement in that or, not, or even knowledge of it. Yeah, you know? I mean, maybe they are having some conversations with some people behind the scenes. I don't know, but when you've reportedly got a two-year offer on the table for Arsene Wenger waiting for him to sign it, that doesn't say to me that this is a club that's uh, thinking about making a change. So again, it comes back to Arsene Wenger deciding what's going to happen. I almost think, I was thinking about it over the weekend, somewhat predictably, I almost think that when Arsene does go, the coach might not be the most important appointment. I actually think that the, the kind of director of football kind of guy mm. who's the sporting director almost might be the bigger deal because that might be the more long-term uh, thing. You know, that's more more of a modern structure, isn't it? Yeah. Club? And uh, that will be f- fascinating to see 
what happens there? Grimondi finally takes the helm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's uh, it, though. I mean, you look around at, at, at who's out there, and you know, you want somebody who knows Arsenal, who understands Arsenal. So, you know, what do you do? I mean, do you say, Dennis Bergkamp, come on in? This is this is you know, think about it. Dennis Bergkamp can't ever be our manager. Yeah, because he can't fly. Um, you sort of need your manager with you when you go, you know, play in Europe and stuff. It's handy to to have him there. But you know, would he be would he be interested in that kind of a job? Overmars is doing that kind of technical job, isn't he? Um, at Ajax, I think. Mm. Um, so he's he's more of a a behind the scenes sort of a guy at Ajax than a than a coach. And Dennis appears to be much more of a training ground uh, sort of fella. So. Um, yeah, I mean that that that's a really good point. Who who that person might be, I'm I'm not quite sure, but uh yeah, it would be very interesting to see what happens and and how they decide to to deal with that or they go out and try and find somebody who can do what Arsene Wenger does, in which case I think uh they're going to be looking a long time. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, on the subject of the manager's future, what did you make of uh the the banner you know, I mean, we talked about this many times, but the guy who brought the banner into the ground with him, I'm sure you saw it on telly. Did you have any reaction to that at all? Um, not surprised. Uh, it's a good way to get yourself on telly, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's gonna. we're going to see more of that, I suppose, if results continue going this way. Mm. Um, and again, it's probably related to what even Gazeta said, you know, in some ways that precipitates stuff like this. Sure. Um, anyway, let's have a, a question. Let's focus on, I guess, the team and things we can do, you know, with the team. Uh, Paul Dunley, uh, who's at Paul D1970 on Twitter, says, We all love Mesut Ozil, but has the time come to bench him in away games at top six? The games literally pass him by. Yeah, it's a bit of a worry, isn't it? It is a I bit of a so, worry. Yeah. Um, because he's one of those players that if you are going to win at places like Chelsea and Anfield and Old Trafford, you know, he's got the quality to help you do that. Um, and, you know, I think last season, people say he goes missing in all the big away games. Um, but I don't think he's alone in that. I think he just maybe stands out a bit more because um, because of the fact he's the record signing and because people have such expectations of him. Uh, in terms of what he can do with the football and his talent, you know. Uh, Mm. It's very difficult to pinpoint any of our really uh, disappointing away results or or bad performances and say, well, it's down to Mesut Ozil not playing well. It's pretty much down to a terrible collective effort. They've been, almost all of them, terrible team performances. So in some ways it's a little unfair, but I I get the point where... Maybe you have to look at the, maybe you have to look at the system. Maybe you have to be even more tactically uh, adventurous uh, when you're going away from home. I, I don't know that there was much more that Arsene Wenger could do um, with his team than he did on on Saturday. I mean, the idea of that starting uh, eleven without Mesut Ozil in it, you know, would have seemed ridiculous before kickoff. I think people would have been going crazy. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to to make of this, really, because it is more part of a poor collective effort than than just bad individuals. I think it is, but I suppose I suppose the problem as it has is that as the club's record signing and as a world class talent, which I think most people accept, um, 
I think even when the team play poorly, there is an expectation or at least a hope mm. that he can be the one to elevate things or pull something out of the fire or contribute that magic moment. I know that that might be unfair, but I think that that's what comes with that kind of reputation. And I think that not only does he struggle to do that sometimes in these big away games, but I think the, the other side of it is that he... You know, defensively, I think he he sort of. I, I, I wouldn't say he doesn't pull his weight, but he's not as effective a contributor as some other players might be. So, for example, if you hadn't played Özil at the weekend, but you had played, I don't know, a fit Danny Welbeck, say on mm-hmm. the left hand side, Welbeck's unlikely to provide that kind of you know moment of genius that might split a defence, but. Do you sort of, on average, increase your chances of getting a positive result by having a player who's a bit more uh, disciplined, maybe, mm. or you know, tenacious in the way they approach the game? Yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I guess that's sort of that's the problem that Özil kind of gives you. He, he he is so good, but he has there is a cost to him as well. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. A lot of people were asking, wondering, or wondering where Lucas Perez was. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah. So my my two theories were, A, he's got an injury, which would explain it. Uh, Mm. He picked up some kind of a knock. Or B, that there were such concerns over um, Coquelin and Oxlade-Chamberlain's fitness that we had to have two central midfielders on the bench. Yeah. Maitland-Niles and and Jeff. Yeah, that is possible. Uh, It was certainly surprising not to see... Him involved. I mean, I, I think he he had a good case for starting. Right. Who would you have started him ahead ahead of Walcott? In that right. Well, w- well, I mean, Walcott didn't have a good game, so certainly that you know, no, he did not. That looks a smart move. Mm. Uh, yeah, the the Urzel thing's tricky. I mean, w- one of the things that I think is increasingly apparent to me is that the reason that one of the reasons that it feels more like Meza Ozil is likely to extend his contract than Alexis Sanchez is because I think Ozil appreciates that the role he's given the majority of the time at Arsenal is going to be quite difficult for him to come by in most top sides, I would say. Mm. The, the level of freedom he has in the team at Arsenal, I think there aren't many teams who play with that kind of pure, pure, pure number 10 anymore. Yeah. Um, but whether or not that how you counterbalance that. It's such a delicate... You know, Arsenal will effectively play a midfield two because Ozil is yeah. free to do whatever he wants and most of the time they're playing against threes or as they were this weekend, another two, but a pretty exceptional two. I mean, N'Golo Kante is... Phenomenal. Ex- uh, unbelievable, isn't I, it? You know, I was... I was- at the end of the season, I mean, he was obviously brilliant for Leicester, but then in general terms, Leicester as a collective were, were quite brilliant last season. So you were thinking, well, is this guy, you know, is he going to do it again? And uh, the, yeah, the answer is uh, very much yes. Um, yeah, very much was, yes. Uh, it was men against boys kind of stuff. And look, again, a, a sign that um, you don't have to be six foot four. Uh, and built like a brick shit house to be uh, the dominant physical player in central midfield. 
Mm-hmm. Like he's, you know, he's quite, I guess, Macaulay. You know, there's no real physical difference between him and someone like Francis Coquelin, for example. You know, in terms of, you know, general stature and build. But in football terms, they're, you know, <laughs> worlds apart. Yeah, yeah. Worlds apart. Was, as soon as Arsene Wenger said that he had tried to sign him a couple of times, you knew he was going to have an absolute stormer of a yeah, game. Yeah, should have tried harder, Arsene. <laughs> yeah. All right, here's one from uh, West Antone, at West Antone, and he says, what sort of value do you think Arsenal's new sports psychologist is providing? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I don't know. Ask me a few weeks ago, and I'd probably say... Oh, he's doing a good job. You know, we keep getting all these late goals, late winners, had the comeback at Bournemouth. Maybe we are more resilient. Mm. Uh, maybe we are more mature. I guess maybe I was a bit premature in, in reaching that conclusion. I, I it, 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 it did appear there was a positive trend prior to Christmas, but uh, I don't know. It, when time and time again when things come to the crunch it's it's not the case mm. and uh i guess as as the season approaches its apex arsenal crumble psychologically so i'd say look uh maybe not great value but i would also say in shad Forsyth's first season we had a, an absolute shit ton of injuries again but give him two or three years working with the players and things improved i guess it's going to be the same with a psychologist. Mm. Yeah, maybe Hopefully. it just takes longer. I mean, to to try and uh, it's twelve I, years, like I said yeah. earlier. You know, it is, and it is. It's a, like a collective. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like, it's not just one one or two individuals you have to get through. You have to get this through to the entire team, probably to the manager too. That yeah. maybe you know, maybe it stems from him. But uh, so far, uh, I would say he is a man who has got his work cut out for him. Oh, I mean, he's thinking, what is this job I've taken <laughs> oh, on for here? fuck's sake, what have I done? I mean, he must have thought, okay, he was probably approached about seven years ago and saw Bentner and Abue on the books and thought, this is too big a job for me. <laughs> now, now he's come in, he thought, this should be all right. He's, it's all unravelling in front of him. He's thinking, oh, I don't know what I've done. I'm going back to the asylum. Mm. Um <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't know, but uh, whatever he's doing, it didn't work this weekend. No. Um, let's have another question. Uh, okay, this one is from. I like the one this way. This was asked. It's from Frisco's Discos One on Twitter. His name's Jay, and he says, "Okay, Bellerin, yeah, it was a foul, but Petr Cech, what the fuck? <laughs> but seriously, does Ospina deserve a shout?" Um, I mean, look. He I mean, Czech had a bad game, didn't he? He did. He was slow. He was slow. Uh, I thought that header. He, I thought he'd made a save, but it came back off the crossbar. Uh, he, he was. He was slow. Yeah. Um, I, I like Petr Czech. He seems like a nice man. Um, considering he spent so long at Chelsea, he doesn't appear to be a complete. Um, cunt. Yeah, I don't know how he managed that. Yeah, um, but I do wonder if goalkeeper is an area in which we need to pay some close attention come the summer. Uh, you know, I I don't think Ospina is as bad as some people say, but he remains kind of unconvincing to me. Um, 
you know, the, the, the whole feet behind the line thing all the time. I just, you know, it, it, it's bizarre. But um, does he deserve a go? Well, we're going to see him next week, aren't we, in the in the Champions League or we're going to see him in the FA Cup. So depending on what happens against Hull, if if uh, Czech makes another mistake against Hull, then maybe Ospina would, would keep his place. Um, you remember the first year he came in for Chesney when Chesney did the smoking thing and, and got dropped. He played pretty well mm. in that in that five-month period, I think. Um, so he's a capable goalkeeper, but I do think maybe it's something we should uh, we should be thinking about in, in uh, stronger terms than just, you know, David Ospina. Come home, Wojciech, you're saying? Basically. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. Uh, yeah. I'm a, look, I'm a Chesney fan. What can I tell you? I know some people will say he's a, you know, he's a waster and a messer and he's had his chances and maybe that's true, but you know, sometimes you just like a guy and I, you know, I like Chesney. I think he's a, I think he's a decent goalkeeper as well. And still at an age where maybe a couple of years away will have matured him as a, as a person, as a character and as a, as a player. Um, you know, there was enough potential in Wojciech Chesney to make him our first choice goalkeeper at what, 19 years of age. So, you know, uh, we'll see, but uh, that's that's clearly not something that's uh, that's going to happen till the summer. What's what's your thoughts on the the goalkeeping situation, Petr Cech? I also like Cech, and um, I've I've certainly had my doubts about David Ospina in the past. I think I've had to sort of eat my words a little bit on on those because he's he's performed pretty well since then. Um, I mean, look, if he keeps a clean sheet at Bayern Munich, he can keep his place. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Mm. Uh, I, I think it will stay Czech as number one. I think that, you know, he's a very senior player and I actually think he's probably one of the players Arsene Wenger will look at to try and arrest this little, you know, mini slump and try and turn things around. He's got so much experience uh, of winning things. He's a, a leader. I think he's a, big, big figure in the dressing room in every respect. Mm. I, I actually think that he's someone that Arsenal will look to lean on, but I thought he had a poor, poor game at Chelsea. And, and I, I suspect he'll know that. And given his longevity in the game, given his, you know, everything he's achieved, you'd mm. think he'd be working pretty hard to correct that. All right. Uh, Invinciblog, at Invinciblog, wants to know, got any thoughts on ex-players becoming what he calls condits? Which is a... Uh, <laughs> Nice mashup of two uh, words there. Uh, he said, in particular, uh, Manu, uh, Manu Petit, practically applauding the assault on Hector Bellerin. And then he does that SMH thing, which I think is well, shake my head. Yeah, but I, I, I believe so. I, I, always, I always just pronounce it like smear. 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 Um, well, let's not forget, Manuel Petit, also an ex-Chelsea player. Yes, uh, so you know, split loyalties there, I guess. Uh, Emmanuel. I mean, I know he's a, he's kind of an Arsenal man, but it was all a bit sour at the end. Um, but anyway, I think a lot of the time, I hear that Lee Dixon can come down quite hard on Arsenal on American television. Um, I think it must be in part due to like a, a, an attempt to avoid accusations of bias. Do you Perhaps. think that's part of it? Perhaps, yeah. Uh, I always get that feeling watching Thierry Henry. I always feel like it, I always feel like there's a slight sense that Henry wants to be positive about Arsenal and wants to protect Arsene Wenger and wants to say nice things, but probably knows that if he doesn't, that's the first accusation that will be levelled at him. Yeah. Um, so I think I think that's where that one comes from. But I, you know, it's 
I mean, I, I think most, I mean, I, I don't like saying it, but most pundits on television sort of are cunts professionally, aren't they? <laughs> That's sort of like their job to, to sort of be dicks about everything. Yeah. I mean, to, to some extent it is, but, you know, <laughs> at, at the same time, I guess the job is to, to, to give your opinion about what you're seeing and to try and provide a little bit of insight. And I think it's quite rare actually that that uh that pundits do very much more than just say what's happened on the screen which is really irritating because we can all see that you know he's come in there at the back post and he's headed it beyond the keeper and it's gone in the top corner what a great goal that no we saw that bit but you try and give us something that we don't know or try and look at it from a different angle which is why i think to to an extent uh, gary neville jamie carraher are, are quite interesting. Uh, Carraher in particular has um, uh, surprised me. He does tend to look at things in an interesting way. Um, yeah, I think what's inter- I think the thing is that it's not always easy for a player. A player oftentimes can be operating almost instinctively. You know, it's sort of they 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 train to play a certain way, and everything becomes kind of second nature to them. I think being able to step back and articulate that. Mm. Uh, is a different skill and one that takes a bit of time to learn. I think that the thing about people who are kind of Arsenal people in punditry roles, and in fact, I'd say this of all pundits, like if you think of Neville, he is a great pundit, but he, I don't think he gives Man United an easy time. I think, in fact, because of his association with United, he's very exacting of them because he ex- has high expectations of them and he wants them to reach that level. And I think that's probably true of ex-Arsenal players too, that they they might be critical of this team, but it's because they want Arsenal to be champion material, mm. you know? Some of them are just uh, cunts though. But some are just cunts, yeah. <laughs> Some I just can't. I mean, at the end of the day, yeah, you know, Danny Mills and Robbie Savage are always going to be Danny Mills and Robbie Savage. Absolutely. I mean, I think the the thing about it is, and as we've seen, um, Chris Sutton, he's one of the worst. Oh, he's trying really hard to be zany, isn't he, Chris Sutton? Yeah, he's unbearable. He is just so bad. Like, oh, look at me with my uh, strange joke here that doesn't really make any sense when you think about it. It's like, shut the fuck up. He's made like a decision to be super opinionated, but without any kind of basis for those opinions, which to be fair, is a plan that's worked really well for Savage. So, you know, he'll probably be very successful. Well, this is it. You know, who who is going to generate more reaction? The guy who tweets. Yeah. The guy who says something absurd and stupid or the guy who's got common sense and and gives you a bit of insight or does it with a bit of intelligence. You know, the way the world works these days and the way the media works, it's that guy, that first guy who says stupid things, whether he believes them or not. Maybe they do believe them. You he know, becomes and, president, that guy. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, but you know what I'm saying? It, it, is, it is that thing as well that people have to take into account that in order to make yourself stand out, like how many ex-players are there out there? But there must be lots more of these ex-players looking for punditry work than actually get it. Right? Yeah. So there's what, 50 across the various radio, TV? Is there like a panel of 50 ex players to a certain say, something like that. So there's got to be loads more trying to get in. And if you're not, if you're not a personality, whether it's completely contrived or not, chances are you're not going to get much work. So 
I think that plays a part as well in, in some of the stuff that you, you hear people say. But, you know, going back to the Bellerin thing, it was almost like there was a, a word Cover from up. on high. Yeah, it felt to me like there was, okay, nobody say that was a foul. Even if you think that's a foul, don't say it's a foul. Not the commentator, not the co-commentator, not uh, the two people who were doing punditry at halftime, uh, uh, Graham Souness and, was it Thierry Henry? At uh, halftime? Yes. Not one of those. Not Jamie Redknapp, who's a, like an extra pundit sitting up in the in the stand being a useful mm. or a useless prick. Um, he was the one who says that, that Alonso was brave. It's almost like this was a direction. So maybe it doesn't matter what the pundits think or say. Maybe to a certain extent, they're told what way to take it. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe somebody who works in Sky, have we got a whistleblower in there? Anyone who's working in Sky behind the scenes of the television, is is that a thing that can happen? Let us know. But it, it, it was strange in that regard. It was strange. It was strange. Um, let's have this one. This is from Chris Garment, who's at Garmentica on Twitter. And they ask, has Cockclan turned into the new Flamini? Runs around, shouts, but isn't actually good enough. Yeah. Ooh. I didn't think you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I quite like him. You know, I think uh, I think he's limited. I think he is a limited player. No question about that. Um, um, what I guess made him likable to so many people is that he did bring us some qualities that we didn't have. You know, there was a, when he came into the team, he looked like a guy who was really trying to grasp his chance. You know, he, he, he does work hard. He clearly, he clearly loves it when we score and win games and things like that. The way he celebrates, he, he's very passionate. Um, and, and people can identify with that. You know, he's quick to sort of celebrate with the crowd and give them the G up and everything else. But I think that his limitations as a footballer are becoming more and more exposed the less he plays with Santi Cazorla. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So without I mean, Cazorla, I think I'd look pretty good next to... Well, not pretty good, but I'd look better next to Cazorla. Yeah. Um, but yes, I think... Well, he's 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 kind of half of something, right? He's like part of a a really nicely balanced pairing. Mm. But when you take Cazorla out, uh, he doesn't seem to mesh particularly well with our our other midfield options. Yeah, yeah. So there uh, you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's an unpopular man on on my Twitter timeline. I've said that a couple of times this season, but there are a few people out there who definitely would dispose of him. I, I think he. I think he's quite important for the team in terms of the qualities that he has. I, I'm not sure we have too many players who have those ball-winning attributes, and I think you need a bit of that. But uh, he won't be pleased with his work over the past week because, you know, I think it was him who couldn't knock Kapu off the ball over in the build-up to Watford's second goal back on Tuesday. So mm. uh, if he's supposed to be shielding the back four, he, he definitely didn't do that this last week. All right, final one. Um, this one comes from Dan Ten, who's at Taniel Dan. And he said, did you manage to see the thing that Ox tweeted after the game? Uh, what are your views on this? Uh, and for those oh, who don't know, something, he favourited uh, a video uh, from Arsenal Fan TV, which said, 
uh, Wenger out or Wenger has to go now. I'm not 100% sure which, but he, he apparently liked this tweet and then came out afterwards and said, uh, oh, that was an accident. I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to cause any offence. Well, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I know for a fact that um, Neil Ashton of the Mail was saying that he... Neil Ashton? Yeah. Yeah, why are you talking to me? Come on, and I need some Chamberlain. He's a Crystal Palace fan as well, so he's very sad at the moment. But uh, he... Uh, that was very funny, I suppose. That was one nice thing this weekend, seeing a Sam Allardyce gals who battered 4-0 at home by his <laughs> former side. Really enjoyed that. But uh, he said that he looked at who Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain follows on Twitter, and he doesn't follow Arsenal Fan TV. So... You know, he probably had to seek it out, even if he didn't mean to like it or favourite it. Mm. He he'd probably gone to have a look, but that's natural, I suppose. It, it could have been, yeah, it could have been retweeted into his timeline. In fairness, it could have been, it could have been. Um, uh, for, uh, from what <laughs> I understand, he and he is expressing that he mortification. You know, he is devastated that it's happened. So sure. I assume there's nothing to it. I mean, surely Ox seems quite a canny you know, very mm. handy person on the PR side. I'm sure he would not know that that would be a bit of a misstep. Yeah, I mean, I, I did like that he, what, what was it he tweeted? Uh, I didn't mean to like that post earlier, obviously. Didn't even realise I had. Um, you know, which I guess is better than the whole, well, my social media team, that was their fault. Oh, that would have been the angle I think I would have gone for. <laughs> Later yeah, on yeah. the social media team. But there was another great one as well. I think, um, I don't know if you saw it, uh, a, a picture of Rob Holding recently. Um, he did an interview with a guy from The Gooner. Mm. He's holding up a copy of The Gooner and on the front of it is like Simeone in, Wenger out, something like that. So I think players <laughs> players don't really pay that much attention to, to that kind of stuff, but... Yeah, no, I thought it was kind of funny, but I'm sure, I don't think, someone, he, I just read Oxley Chandler's tweet that you just quoted about, oh, I didn't do it on purpose, and someone just replied straight away with, the revolution starts with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea that, you know, Oxley Chandler would kind of lead the revolt, but I don't think that's what's happening. Alex Oxley, Che Guevara, Chamberlain, I'm not nice. sure. Nice. Yeah. Che, che Guevara, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, look, we've somehow managed to finish on a relatively cheerful note. I don't know how we've done it. I don't either. It's uh, it's taken us about uh, an hour and a half to get there. But <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about That's the first hour and a bit, everyone. Uh, well, well, look, um, what can if you do? you made it this far... Congratulations. Wow. Congratulations Amazing. to you. Thank you, uh, as ever, for listening. We are going to have an Arsecast on Thursday. Um, we're facing Hull at the weekend, so we'll preview that game, and uh, we'll be back next week to look at that game, preview Bayern Munich away in the Champions League. Um, uh, so that's it. We'll, we'll catch you then. Thanks, as ever, for listening. Remember, give us a, a rating or a review on iTunes. That would be great. Um, mm. You know, we, we, we need that. We need that in our lives, especially this week. Oh, this week of all weeks. Absolutely. All right, uh, from myself and James and Neil Ashton saying goodbye here. It's uh, been a pleasure with you uh, on this uh, Sunday supplement. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Oh, oh you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, bye-bye, guys. This 
holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.